32. He passed no rugged hills. A great deal of the road lay between double rows of birch trees, that serve for shade in summer and do much to prevent the drifting of snow in winter. Forests of fir appeared on the slopes, and were especially pleasing after the half-desolation of the steppe. The villages had a larger and more substantial appearance, that indicated our approach to Europe. Long trains laden with freight from Perm, blocked the way and delayed us. A few collisions made our sleigh tremble, and into instances turned it on its beam ends. We were ahead of the tea trains that left Irkutsk with the early snows, so that we passed few sledges going in our own direction. The second night found us so near Ekaterinburg that we halted a couple of hours for the double purpose of taking tea and losing time. At the last station, about six in the morning, we were greeted with Christmas festivities, while we waited in the traveler's room. Two boys sung or chanted several minutes, and then begged for money. We gave them a few kopecks and their success brought to others, who were driven away by the trail. I was told that poor children have a privilege of begging in this manner on Christmas morning. There are many beggars in the towns and villages of the Urals, and in summer there is a fair supply of highwaymen. Several beggars surrounded our sleigh as we prepared to depart and seemed determined to make the most of the occasion. The undulations of the road increased, and the fir woods became thicker as we approached E.K. Reinberg, nestled on the bank of the Eset. Just outside the town we passed a large zavod, devoted to the manufacture of candles. An immense quantity of tallow from the Kyrgyz steppes undergoes conversion into stearin at this establishment, and the production supplies candles to all Siberia and part of European Russia. As we entered the Slobodka and descended rapidly toward the river, the bells were clanging loudly and the population was generally on its way to church. The men were in their best shubas and caps while the women displayed the latest fashions in winter cloaks. Several pretty faces, rosy from the biting frost, peered at the strangers, who returned as many glances as possible. Our Yenshik took us to the Hotel de Berlin, and, for the first time in 1800 versts, we unloaded our baggage from the sleighs, breakfast, a bath, and a change of clothes prepared me for the sights of this Uralian city. For sightseeing, the time of my arrival was unfortunate. Every kind of work was suspended, every shop was closed, and nothing could be done until the end of the Christmas holidays. I especially desired to inspect the Grand Illinois Fabric, or Imperial Establishment for Stone Cutting, and the machine shop where all steam engines for Siberia are manufactured. But, as everything had yielded to the general festivities, I could not gratify my desire. E.K. Reinberg is on the Asiatic side of the Urals. Though belonging to the European government of Perm, it has a beautiful situation, the Isa being dammed so as to form a small lake in the middle of the city. Many of the best houses overlook this lake, and, from their balconies, one can enjoy charming views of the city, water, and the dark forests of the Urals. The principal street and favorite drive passes at the end of the lake, and is pretty well thronged in fine weather. There are many wealthy citizens in E.K. Reinberg. As the character of the houses will attest, I was told there was quite a rage among them for statuary, pictures, and other works of art. Special care is bestowed upon conservatories, some of which contain tropical plants imported at enormous expense. The population is about 20,000, and increases very slowly. The city is the central point of mining enterprises of the Ural Mountains, and the residence of the Nakelnik, or chief of mines. The general plan of management is much like that already described at Barneal. The government mines include those of iron, 
copper, and gold, the latter being of least importance. Great quantities of shot, shell, and guns have been made in the Urals, as well as iron work for more peaceful purposes. Beside the government works, there are numerous foundries and manufactories of a private character. In various parts of the Ural chain some of the Zavods are of immense extent, and employ large numbers of workmen. At Nine Tegilsk, for example, there is a population of 25,000, all engaged directly or indirectly in the production of iron. The sheet iron so popular in America for parlor stoves and stovepipe, comes from E.K. Reinberg and its vicinity, and is made from magnetic ore. The bar iron of the Urals is famous the world over for its excellent qualities, and commands a higher price than any other. Great quantities of iron are floated in boats down the streams flowing into the Kamra and Volga. Thence it goes to the fair at Nine Novgorod, and to the points of shipment to the maritime markets. The development of the wealth of the Urals has been largely due to the Demigoth family. Nikite Demigoth was sent by Peter the Great, about the year 1701, to examine the mines on both sides of the chain. He performed his work thoroughly, and was so well satisfied with the prospective wealth of the region that he established himself there permanently. In return for his services, the government granted a large tract to the Demigoths in perpetuity. The famous Malachite mines are on the Demigoth estate but are only a small portion of the mineral wealth in the original grant. I have heard the Demigoth family called the richest in Russia except the Romanov. Many Zavods in the Urals were planned and constructed by Nikite and his descendants, and most of them are still in successful operation and have undergone no change. The iron works of the Urals are very extensive, and capable of supplying any reasonable demand of individual or imperial character. At Zlodehus there is a manufactory of firearms and sword blades that is said to be unsurpassed in the excellence of its products. The sabers from Zlodehus are of superior fineness and quality, rivaling the famous blades of Damascus and Toledo. Close by the little lake in E.K. Reinberg is the Manada fabric, or imperial mint, where all the copper money of Russia is coined. It is an extensive concern, and most of its machinery was constructed in the city. The copper mines of the Urals are the richest in Russia, and possess inexhaustible wealth. Malachite and oxide of copper is found here in large quantities. I believe the only mines where malachite is worked are in the Urals, though small specimens of this beautiful mineral have been found near Lake Superior and in Australia. About 25 years ago an enormous mass of malachite, said to weigh 400 tons, was discovered near Tegilsk. It has since been broken up and removed its value being more than a million rubles. Sir Roderick Murchison, while exploring the Urals on behalf of the Russian government, saw this treasure while the excavations around it were in progress. According to his account it was found 280 feet below the surface. Strings of copper were followed by the miners until they unexpectedly reached the malachite. Other masses of far less importance have since been found, some of them containing 60% of copper. The gold mines of the Ural are less extensive now than formerly. New discoveries not equaling the exhausted placers. They are principally on the Asiatic slope. In the vicinity of Kamenskoy, the Emperor Alexander first visited the mines of the Ural in 1824, and personally wielded the shovel and pickaxe nearly two hours. A nugget weighing 24 pounds and some ounces was afterward found about two feet below the point where His Majesty knocked off work. A monument now marks the spot and contains the tools handled by the Emperor. Chapter XLIX I had several commissions to execute for the purchase of souvenirs at E.K. Reinberg, 
and lost no time in visiting a dealer. While we were at breakfast a night ignorant merchant called, and subsequently another accosted us on the street. At ordinary times, strangers are beset by men and boys who are walking cabinets of semi-precious stones. A small boy met me in the corridor of the hotel and repeated a lapidarius vocabulary that would have shamed a professor of mineralogy. At the dealers, I was very soon in a bewildering collection of amethyst, beryl, chalcedony, topaz, tourmaline, jasper, aquamarine, malachite, and other articles of value. The collection numbered many hundred pieces comprising seals, paper, weights, beads, charms for watch chains, vases, statuettes, brooches, buttons, etc. The handles of seals were cut in a variety of ways, some representing animals or birds, while a goodly portion were plain or fluted at the sides. The prettiest work I saw was in paperweights. There were imitations of leaves, flowers, and grapes in properly tinted stone fixed upon marble tablets either white or colored. Equal skill was displayed in arranging and cutting these stones. I saw many beautiful mosaics displaying the stones of the Ural and Altai Mountains. Natural crystals were finely arranged in the shape of miniature caves and grottos. Beads were of malachite, crystal, topaz, and variegated marble, and seemed quite plentiful. Malachite is the most abundant of the half-precious stones of the Ural. Crystal and topaz ranking next. Aquamarine was the most valuable stone offered. It is not found in the Urals but comes from eastern Siberia. In another establishment there were little busts of the emperor and other high personages in Russia. Cut in crystal and topaz. I saw a fine bust of Yermak. And another of the elder Demidov. Both in topaz. A crystal bust of Louis Napoleon was exhibited. And its owner told me it would be sent to the Exposition Universelle. Learning that I was an American, the proprietor showed me a half-completed bust of Mr. Lincoln, and was gratified to learn that the likeness was good. The bust was cut in topaz, and when finished would be about six inches high. Bono work was in progress I had opportunity to look through a private fabric. Stone cutting is performed as by lapidaries everywhere with small wheels covered with diamond dust or emery. Each laborer has his bench and performs a particular part of the work under the direction of a superintendent. Wages were very low. Skilled workmen being paid less than ordinary stevedores in America. For three rubles, I bought a twelve-sided topaz, an inch in diameter with the signs of the zodiac neatly engraved upon it. In London or New York, the cutting would have cost more than ten times that amount. The Grand Illinois fabric employs about a hundred and fifty workmen but no private establishment supports more than 25. The Grand Illinois fabric was to be sold in 1867, and pass out of government control. The laborers there were formerly crown peasants, and became free under the abolition ukase of Alexander II. The Palace and Imperial Museum at St. Petersburg contain wonderful illustrations of their skill. Diamonds have been sought in the Urals, and the region is said to resemble the diamond districts of Brazil. They have been found in but a single instance, and there is a suspicion that the few discovered on that occasion were a plant. We remain two days at E.K. Reinberg, repairing sleighs and resting from fatigue. On account of the holidays, we paid double prices for labor, and were charged double by drosky drivers. At the hotel, the landlord wished to follow the same custom, but we emphatically objected. A theatrical performance came off during our stay but we were too weary to witness it. Near the hotel there was a live beast show, almost an exact counterpart of what one sees in America. Music, 
voluble doorkeepers, gaping crowd of youngsters, and canvas pictures of terrific combats between beasts and snakes, all were there. According to our custom we prepared to start in the evening for another westward stride. The thermometer was low enough to give the snow that crisp, metallic sound under the runners only heard in cold weather. We took tickets for Kazan, and ordered horses at 9 o'clock. As we left the city, we passed between two monument-like posts, marking the gateway, two or three versts away. We passed the Zavod of Verpnyesetskoy, an immense concern with a population sufficient to found a score of western cities. In this establishment is made a great deal of the sheet iron that comes to America. The material is of so fine a quality that it can be rolled to the thickness of leather paper without breaking. Everything at the Zavod is on a grand scale even to the house of the director, and his facilities for entertaining guests. All was silent at the time of our passage, the workmen being busy with their Christmas festivities. Leaving the Zavod we were once more among the forests of the Urals, and riding over the low hills that form this part of the range. The road was good, but there were more alcobas than suited my fancy. I was on constant lookout for the steep road leading over the range, but failed to find it. Before leaving New York a friend suggested that I should have a severe journey over the Ural Mountains which were deeply shaded on the map we consulted. I can assure him it was no worse than a sleigh ride anywhere else on a clear, frosty night. The ascent is so gradual that one does not perceive it at all. E.K. Reinberg stands 800 feet above the sea, the pass, 24 miles distant, is only 900 feet higher. The range is depressed at this point but nowhere attains sufficient loftiness to justify its prominence on the maps. In E.K. Reinberg I asked for the mountains. There they are, said the person of whom I inquired, and he waved his hand toward a wooded ridge in the west. The designated locality appeared less difficult of passage than the hills opposite Cincinnati. Don't fail to tell the Yenshik to stop at the boundary. This was my injunction several times repeated as we changed horses at the first station. Eight or ten versts on our second course. The sleigh halted and the Yenshik announced the highest point on the road. I stepped from the sleigh and waded through a deep snowdrift to the granite obelisk erected by the first Alexander to mark the line between the two continents. It is a plain shaft Dunker Hill monument in miniature bearing the word Europe on one side, and Asia on the other. Two fir trees planted by His August Majesty are on opposite sides of the monument. A snowdrift in the middle of a frosty night is not the place for sentimental musings. I rested a foot in each of two continents at the same moment, but could not discover any difference in their manners, customs, or climate. Regaining the sleigh, I nestled into my furs, and soon fell asleep. I was in Europe. I had accomplished the hope and dream of my boyhood, but in my most romantic moments, I had not expected to stand for the first time in Europe on the ridge of the Ural Mountains. After passing the boundary, we dashed away over the undulating road and made a steady though, imperceptible descent into the valley of the Kama. As I commenced my first day in Europe, the sunbeams wavered and glistened on the frost crystals that covered the trees, and the flood of light that poured full into my opening eyes was painfully dazzling. Where we halted for breakfast, the station was neat and commodious, and its rooms well furnished. We fared sumptuously on cutlets and eggs, with excellent bread, just as we were seated in the sleigh. A beggar made a touching appeal as explained by the doctor, in behalf of the prophet Elias, the prophet's financial agent was of so unprepossessing appearance that we declined investing, beggars often ask alms in the interest of particular saints, 
and this one had attached himself to Elias. We met many sledges laden with goods en route to the fair which takes place every February at Irbit. This fair is of great importance to Siberia, and attracts merchants from all the region west of Tomsk. From 40 to 50 million rubles worth of goods are exchanged there during the four weeks devoted to traffic. The commodities from Siberia are chiefly furs and tea. Those from Europe comprise a great many articles. Irbit is on the Asiatic side of the Ural Mountains, about 200 versts northeast of Ekaterinburg. It is a place of little consequence except during the time of the fair. After entering Europe, we relied upon the stations for our meals, carrying no provisions with us except tea and sugar. We knew the peasants would be well supplied with edibles during Christmas holidays, and were quite safe in depending upon them. A traveler in Russia must consult the calendar before starting on a journey. If he would ascertain what provision he may, or may not, find among the people, Conger was the first town of importance, and has an unenviable reputation for its numerous thieves. They do not molest the post vehicles unless the opportunity is very favorable, their accomplishments being specially exercised upon merchandise trains. Sometimes when trains pass through Conger the natives manage to steal single vehicles and their loads. The operation is facilitated by there being only one driver to five or six teams. This town is also famous for its tanneries, the leather from Conger having a high reputation throughout Russia. Peter the Great was at much trouble to teach the art of tanning to his subjects. At present, the Russians have very little to learn from others on that score. Peter introduced tanning from Holland and Germany, and when the first piece of leather tanned in Russia was brought to him he took it between his teeth and exerted all the strength of his jaws to bite through it. The leather resisted his efforts, and so delighted the monarch that he decreed a pension to the successful tanner, the specimen, with the marks of his teeth upon it is still preserved at St. Petersburg. While waiting for dinner at Conger, I contemplated some engravings hanging in the public room at the station. Four of them represented scenes in Elizabeth, or the Exiles of Siberia, a story which has been translated into most modern languages. These engravings were made in Moscow several years ago, and illustrated the most prominent incidents in the narrative. There were many things to remind me I was no longer in Siberia and especially on the Baraba steppe, snows were deeper, and the sky was clearer, the level country was replaced by a broken one, forests of pine and fir displayed regular clearings, and evinced careful attention, villages were more numerous, larger and of greater antiquity, stations were better kept and had more the air of hotels, churches appeared more venerable and less venerated, beggars increased in number, and importunity. In Asia the Yenshik was the only man at a station who asked, Nevaku. But in Europe the Kilavik or Starost expected to be remembered. In Asia, the gratuity was called, Nevaku, or whiskey money, in Europe. It was, Nekai, tea money. During the second night, we reached Perm and halted long enough to eat a supper that made me dream of tigers and polar bears during my first sleep. In entering, we drove along a lighted street with substantial houses on either side but without meeting man or beast. This street and the station were all I saw of a city of 25.000 inhabitants. In summer travelers for Siberia usually leave the steamboat at this point, and begin their land journey, the comma being navigable thus far in ordinary water. Perm is an important mining center, and contains several foundries and manufactories on an extensive scale. The doctor assured me that after the places I had visited in Siberia, there was nothing to be seen there and I saw it. 
a deep snow had been trodden into an uneven road in this part of the journey. At times it seemed to me as if the sleigh and all it contained would go to pieces in the terrific thumps we received. We descended hills as if pursued by wolves or a guilty conscience, and it was generally our fate to find a huge outcaba just when the horses were doing their best. I think the sleigh sometimes made a clear leap of six or eight feet from the crest of a ridge to the bottom of a hollow. The leaping was not very objectionable, but the impact made everything rattle, I could say. Like the Irishman who fell from a housetop. Twas not the fall, darling, that hurt me. But stopping so quick at the end, when the roads are rough the continual jolting of the sleigh is very fatiguing to a traveler, and frequently, during the first two or three days of his journey, throws him into what is very properly designated the road fever. His pulse is quick, his blood warm, his head aches, his whole frame becomes sore and stiff, and his mind is far from being serene and amiable. In the first part of my land journey I had the satisfaction of ascertaining by practical experience the exact character of the road fever. My brain seemed ready to burst, and appeared to my excited imagination about as large as a barrel. Every fresh jolt and thump of the vehicle gave me a sensation as if somebody were driving a tenpenny nail into my skull, as for good nature under such circumstances that was out of the question, and I am free to confess that my temper was not unlike that of a bear with a sore head. Where the roads are good, or if the speed is not great, one can sleep very well in a Russian sleigh. I succeeded in extracting a great deal of slumber from my vehicle, and sometimes did not wake for three or four hours. Sometimes the roads are in such wretched condition that one is tossed to the height of discomfort, and can be very well likened to a lump of butter in a revolving churn. In such cases sleep is almost if not wholly, impossible, and the traveler, proceeding at courier speed, must take advantage of the few moments halt at the stations while the horses are being changed, as he has but 10 or 15 minutes for the change he makes good use of his time and sleeps very soundly until his team is ready. During the Crimean War, while the Emperor Nicholas was temporarily sojourning at Moscow, a courier arrived one day with important dispatches from Sebastopol. He was commissioned to deliver them to no one but His Majesty and waited in the ante-room of the palace while his name and business were announced. Overcome by fatigue he fell asleep, when the chamberlains came to take him to the imperial presence they were quite unable to rouse him. The attendants shook him and shouted, but to no purpose beyond making so much disturbance as to bring the emperor to the ante-room. Nicholas ordered them to desist, and then, standing near the officer, said, in an ordinary voice, Vesh Privoskoti Telstvo. Loshidi Godovi, your horses are ready, your excellency. The officer sprang to his feet in an instant, greatly to the delight of the emperor and to his own confusion when he discovered where he was. The Russians have several popular songs that celebrate the glories of sleigh riding. I give a translation of a portion of one of them, a song that is frequently repeated by the peasants in the vicinity of Moscow and Nine Novgorod. It is proper to explain that a troika is a team of three horses abreast. The Duda is the yoke above the shaft horse's neck, and Valdai is the town on the Moscow and St. Petersburg road where the best and most famous bells of Russia are made. A Russian slaying song, away, away, along the road the fiery trike bounds, while neath the Duda, sadly sweet, the Valdai bell resounds, away, away, we leave the town, its roofs and spires behind, the crystal snowflakes dance around as o'er the step we wind, away. Away, the glittering stars shine greeting from above, our hearts beat fast as on we glide, 
swift as the flying dove. Chapter L. We found the road much better after leaving the government of Perm and entering that of Vyatka. The Yanchiks we took in this region were Voshiaks, descendants of the Finnish races that dwelt there before the Russian conquest. They had the dark physiognomy of the Finns, and spoke a mixture of their own language and Russian. They have been generally baptized and brought into the Greek churches, though they still adhere to some of their ancient forms of worship. They pay taxes to the crown, but their local administration is left to themselves. Approaching Malmuish we had a sullen driver who insisted upon going slowly, even while descending hills. Indignantly I suggested giving the fellow a kick for his drink money. The doctor attempted to be stern and reprove the delinquent, but ended with giving him five kopecks and an injunction to do better in future. I opposed making and deserve gratuities, and after this occurrence determined to say no more about rewards to drivers during the rest of the journey. Memorandum for travelers making the Siberian tour, an irritable disposition, like mine, should not be placed with an amiable one, like the doctor's, if misery loves company. So does anger, and a petulant man should have an associate who can be ruffled. After leaving the Voshiaks, we entered the country of the Tartars, the descendants of the followers of Genghis Khan, who carried the Mongol standard into Central Europe. Russia remained long under their yoke, and the Tartars of the present day live as a distinct people in various parts of the empire. They are nearly all Mohammedans, and the conversion of one of them to Christianity is a very rare occurrence. My attention was called to their mosques in the villages we passed, the construction being quite unlike that of the Russian churches, a tall spire or minaret, somewhat like the steeple of an American church, rises in the center of the Tartar mosque and generally overlooks the whole village, no bells are used, the people being called to prayer by the voice of a the crier, these Tartars have none of the warlike spirit of their ancestors, and are among the most peaceful subjects of the Russian emperor, they are industrious and enterprising and managed to live comfortably. Their reputation for shrewdness doubtless gave rise to the story of the difficulty of catching a Tartar. At the stations we generally found Russian smotrials with Tartar attendants, blacksmiths, looking for jobs, carefully examined our slaves. One found my shafts badly chafed where they touched the runners, and offered to iron the weak points for sixty kopecks. I objected to the delay for preparing the irons. Grotovi, Grotovi, Pete Minute, said the man producing the ready-prepared irons from one pocket and a hammer and nails from another. By the time the horses were led out the job was completed. I should have been better satisfied if one iron had not come off within two hours, and left the shaft as bare as ever. The Tartars speak Russian very fairly, but use the Mongol language among themselves. They dress like the Russians, or very nearly so. The most distinguishing feature being a sort of skullcap like that worn by the Chinese. Their hair is cut like a prize fighter's, excepting a little tuft on the crown. Out of doors they wore the Russian cap over their Mohammedan one unconsciously symbolizing their subjection to Muscovite rule. These Tartars drove horses of the same race as those in the Baraba steppe. They carried us finely where the road permitted, and I had equal admiration for the powers of the horses and the skill of their drivers. In the night, after passing Nalmush, the weather became warm. I laid aside my dihar only a half hour before the thermometer fell, and set me shivering. About daybreak it was warmer, and the increasing temperature ushered in a violent storm. It snowed and it blowed, and it was cold, frosty weather all day and all night. We closed the sleigh and attempted to exclude the snow, but our efforts were vain. The little crevices admitted enough to cover us in a short time, 
and we very soon concluded to let the wind have its own way. The road was filled, and in many places we had hard work to get through. How the Yamchiks found the way was a mystery. Once at a station, when the Smotril announced, Godovi, I was actually unable to find the sleigh. Though it stood not twenty feet from the door, the Yamchiks said they were guided by the telegraph posts, which followed the line of road. We were four hours making twenty-five versts to the last station before reaching Kazan. We took a hearty supper of soup, eggs, and bread, under a suspicion that we might remain out all night. Once the mammoth sleigh came up with us in the dark, and its shafts nearly ran us through. Collisions of this kind happened occasionally on the road, but were rarely as forcible as this one. We were twice on our beam ends and nearly overturned, and on several occasions stuck in the snow. By good luck we managed to arrive at Kazan about 2 a.m. On reaching the hotel, we were confronted by what I thought a snow statue, but which proved to be the Dvornik, or Watchman. Our baggage was taken upstairs, while we shook the snow from our furs. The samovar shortened our visages and filled our stomachs with tea. We retired to rest upon sofas and did not rise until a late hour. It happened to be New Year's, and the fashionable society of Kazan was doing its congratulations. I drove through the principal part of the city and found an animated scene. Numberless and numbered druskies were darting through the streets, carrying gaily dressed officers making their ceremonious calls. Soldiers were parading with bands of music, and the lower classes were out in large numbers. The storm had ceased, the weather was warm, and everything was propitious for outdoor exercise. The soldiers were the first I had seen since entering Europe and impressed me favorably with the Russian army. They wore gray uniforms, like those I saw in Siberia, and marched with a regular and steady stride. It was not till I had reached St. Petersburg that I saw the elite of the emperor's military forces. The reforms of Alexander have not left the army untouched. Great improvements have been made in the last 12 or 15 years. More attention has been paid to the private soldiers than heretofore. Their pay being increased and time of service lessened. The imperial family preserves its military character, and the present emperor allows no laxity of discipline in his efforts to elevate the men in the ranks. It is said of the Grand Duke Michel, uncle of Alexander II, that he was a most rigid disciplinarian. His great delight was in parades, and he never overlooked the least irregularity. Not a button, not a mustache even, escaped his notice, and whoever was not in regla was certain to be punished. He is reported to have said, I detest war, it breaks the ranks, deranges the soldiers, and soils their uniforms. F footnote F, the land forces of Russia are formed of two descriptions of troops the regular troops properly so called, and the feudal militia of the Cossacks and similar tribes. The regular army is recruited from the classes of peasants, 